it's imperative that technology companies, because I do believe SaaS is the future of business, like one day it will be the same as banking institutions, that those companies learn how to actually become a proper business, a proper revenue team. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today, we're talking about how to break down silos in SaaS companies. Number one, why is it so critical to do it? Understanding why it's hurting your revenue. And the bigger question is how to even get started. As these silos have a tendency to grow kind of organically as an organization does, how do you even start to disassemble them and drive to a much more cohesive organizational approach? To help us, we have Jason Reichold, CEO of Go Nimbly, the first revenue operations consultancy. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Chad. I'm very happy to be here. So before we jump into the topic of the day, we always like to start with an icebreaker. And this is, I don't know why this has been a, this has been a hot button topic for me lately, but because we've all been stuck at home <laughs> yeah. doing, uh, doing a whole bunch of other things. But curious, people that know you largely through work or just your professional persona. What is something you're passionate about that those that really only know you through work may be surprised to learn? Yeah. Um, well, I think that that's a little bit of a hard question for those I work with because anyone that knows me and, and follows kind of the things I believe in, I believe in total integration of self. Uh, I don't believe there's such thing as a work-life balance or separation. I believe that those things should be completely aligned to find the most fulfillment in your life. So I think that most people are not surprised when they find out things about me and in work, but I have always been a creative artist. I have uh, toured in bands my whole life, uh, done comedy my whole life, just been very into the arts. And I feel like that makes me really good at running a business and understanding groups in a way that is fundamentally intrinsic to me. And I, I really value that side of my personality. And so I think what would be, odd to people is when they come see these things, how flushed out, like my being in a band is, or my, my stand-up comedy or my improv, people often ask me, do you not sleep? And the answer is I, I, I do sleep a little bit, but really I try to do things that align and allow me to make progress in, in my life, including work and have them all be sort of emergent together. I'm a big fan and passionate about design thinking and designing the life that you want. So I think that's another thing that someone might be a little uh, surprised about how intentional everything is that I do. Excellent. And so the the bands and the comedy were these things that you picked up at a young age or came to later in life, found a passion for? Uh, how did that yeah, unfold? I started playing in bands when I was 16 or 15 or 16 and, and touring and, and just doing that all through my adolescence and still do that now. As I got older, it was harder to find time to be in a band with other people. And so if people know anything about musicians is every musician thinks that they're a comedian, every, every uh, comedian wants to be a musician. So uh, I, I started doing improv and, and stand up as a supplement to just really this community that form that I found in being in bands. Another thing that I'm really passionate about is I grew up punk rock and playing in bands and things like that. And so I have a very DIY ethic about myself and I love building communities and being part of creative communities. 
That's awesome. So, okay. So then, so we go from punk rock and, and comedy to revenue operations. How the heck did that happen? <laughs> oh, I think it's a pretty natural, uh, natural thing. Um, so one of the things that I got really interested is, so I was a consultant and ran a large consulting team for one of Salesforce's SIs for many, many years had many uh, people reporting to me. That was great. Learned all about revenue, sales, you know, customer success, all of that kind of stuff. But being in Silicon Valley, I'm based in San Francisco. I went and was the VP of product at a couple organizations and helped an organization become a unicorn company through my, you know, through my product leadership. And what I found though, is even in the best company where you were valued at, you know, a billion dollars, the revenue team really didn't know how to sell the product and it really wasn't operating like a business. And because of that, I had this idea that, oh, I can probably teach SaaS and, and past technology companies how to operate like little businesses. Cause I believe that we were moving into this era, this new era of customer, which we can talk about in a little bit. We're moving into a new era of a customer, but more important, we're also moving into a new era of funding where I think that VCs are going to diversify their portfolio. They're going to still give it $100 million, but they're going to give it to 10 companies instead of one company. And because of that, I think it's imperative that technology companies, because I do believe SaaS is the future of business, like it, it, one day it will be the same as banking institutions, that those companies learn how to actually become a proper business, a proper revenue team. And so when we say revenue operations, because you hit a bunch of different areas there, funding to selling the product, is there a concise kind of easy to understand for our, for our audience definition? Yeah, when you say revenue absolutely. operations, what, do you, what exactly do you mean? Yeah, so I'm writing a book about this now. And, and the, there's two things that I say. There's the definition that I tell my mom. Um, <laughs> and then there is the uh, professional definition. So we'll, we'll start with uh, the professional definition, and I'll, I'll simplify. I'll even simplify further for those of people who don't really, you know, understand the inner workings of, say, the business systems, right? So, in your business, you have, in my opinion, two distinct flywheels. You have a product side of your business; they're making the widget, and that is made up of. If you're in a tech company, uh, that's made up of programmers and product managers and people who who want to make sure that you have the margin or growth you you need. And that's called business. That's the business side of it. That's the product side. And they're usually driven by margin or growth, right? Then you have this other flywheel called revenue, the revenue team. And those people should be driven by revenue growth. And who is part of that revenue team? To me, it's sales, marketing, customer success. I call that your go-to-market team. They're the ones that are, you know, shaking the hands of, of the people. They're the ones that are interacting with people, even if it's by sending them an email, right? But they're, they're directly interacting on a one-on-one -on -one basis with your customer. And then you have the yang to that yang, which is revenue operations, which are sales operations, marketing operations, and customer success operations merged into one generalist function that's about servicing the customer experience at scale for the revenue team. And they report to the CRO or CEO uh, if you have you know, a CRO. And so that whole flywheel becomes your revenue team. So it's go-to-market and revenue operations become your revenue team. So that's the more nuanced, you understand how these things function, I answer and then the way I describe it to my mom is, you know, if you think about actors and, and you think about the people who are in the scene, that's your sales, marketing, customer success people, that's your go-to-market. And then behind the scenes, the people who hold the boom mics and are directors and are the script writers and are all these other elements, that's your revenue operations team. I um, like that. And so that, that of, you know, helping people think of it as a movie set, right, helps them understand. 
what role those people are playing behind the scenes. And so, I mean, just in that kind of division, right, the people behind the scenes, the people in the scene, we're already starting to to use language or, or analogies that have natural division in them, right? There's a natural yep. division. So when we talk about silos in business, it's not unusual, as most organizations out there, for everybody to talk about customer experience, but nobody to really know what the hell that means, or how to make it a reality, except in their particular silos. So how do you go around and how do you help these organizations get rid of these naturally forming silos uh, and get rid of the drag or on revenue or the negative impact that it can have on customer experience? Yeah, totally. Well, I think it's important to understand why silos get created. It is totally natural. You know, the term silo syndrome, which is what we often talk about, you know, uh, um, comes from this guy named Phil who worked for Goodyear Tires and his job was to drive around the country and find, uh, try to unite all the Goodyear tires. And if you know, remember the 80s and 90s, Goodyear tires was like in every small town in America. Oh, yeah. you know, they had hundreds and hundreds of, of, of places. And regardless of what the corporation wanted, which was to streamline things and increase margin for everyone. And these things were not franchised. They were owned by Goodyear tires. But when he went to these individual markets, none of them, all of them pushed back about becoming this entity. And they all use these excuses of, well, you don't understand this market. You don't understand X, Y, Z. And what he came up with is really the four fundamentals of why silos are created. And they're, they're created when number of employees skyrocket. So Goodyear Tires was opening like 100, 100 stores a year, essentially across America. So of course, the number of employees are going to shoot up, right? The number of organizational units, so each of those stores were a unit, then there was regional units, and then there was all this kind of bureaucracy that was being created from the structure itself. And then because of tires and because of where these things were located, there was a high degree of specialization in each Goodyear tire. So they really couldn't run as a, a single unit because everyone was specialized. And then ultimately, it was also had to do with incentives. They weren't all built on one incentive. And so he was driving through Iowa and saw you know, the grains of silo and came up with the term silo syndrome is that they were all protecting these natural, these natural occurring things because the organization didn't understand how to deal with essentially organizational growth in a healthy way. And he spent his entire career trying to solve that problem. He died uh, early in the early 2000s. And I think we are now with revenue operations just at the cusp with technology and other things to actually break down these silos. And then I think the catalyst for that is that the customers are demanding a different level of experience from B2B, which is very similar to what they've been getting in B2C. And I can talk about that, but there is a catalyst of the customer too. So it's not only about our internal issues, but it's about customers wanting a different kind of experience and, and the buying experience that they're, they're experiencing with their business. So those are the sort of two things that I see. Yeah. And, and we've, I mean, we've kind of trained B2B. I mean, anybody that lives a B2C life, they have Amazon, they have Netflix, they have, they've been to Disney. They all have had these experiences that are completely focused on them, what they want, where they want it, how they want mm -hmm. it, when they want it. They take those expectations into B2B, but to deliver that type of complete experience from beginning to end the customer life cycle, whatever you want to call it, you can't have the silos or you end up creating friction points along the process. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to do that, it drives organizations to say, Hey, I'm focused on customer experience, but there's a difference between that and a customer centric approach. And Correct. so I'm curious to know kind of what's your perspective on the two and, and why do you yeah. see organizations kind of talk the talk, but not walk the walk? Absolutely. So just to, add to that a little bit. So what we found through our research and, and we're doing some, we're doing, we're moving into being a, a, 
a revenue operations company where, you know, we're building software out, we're doing research, we are doing coaching, we still do consultancy for businesses. So we're, we're moving across the gamut of what I would call revenue operations services and products. But one of the things that we're doing in our research is we found that we are past this age of the informed buyer, right? And so this is a thing that's been lulled since, well, I don't know, the first time I heard it was at a conference in like, you know, 1999 or something, right? So the idea that your buyer knows more about your product than the sales rep they're talking to because they've done research is just complete horseshit. At this point, people are coming to your product because they want to buy it. They're coming with the intention to buy. Everyone at this point understands the internet. They understand how to do their own research. So when they get to your website and they interact with you, they are, they want to buy you. Maybe sometimes in the bureaucracies that they exist in, they have to maybe have two or three competitors put it against each other. But everyone's been in the sales cycle where that person's saying, well, I really want you, but I have to do this to please my boss, right? right. That's a bureaucracy of silos <laughs> at work in itself. So what I found is what ends up happening is someone comes to, and one of our customers is Zendesk as an example. Zendesk is a huge customer service platform that's very popular for you know doing ticketing, customer service work. People come there because they want to buy Zendesk, right? What ends up happening though, and you called it friction, but it's, it's worse than that. The customer experiences gaps, just total fallout from urine processes. Internally, it feels like friction. To the customer, it feels like gaps. And what we found is that customers will reduce their long-term commitment with you, their contract value, and you'll eat away their political capital to the point where you're losing what they would have given you. And we've done this through asking people like, okay, were you sure you wanted to buy Zendesk? Yes, after meeting one, I was sure I wanted to buy Zendesk. So why didn't you then deploy it across your entire organization? And then what emerges is these gaps erode the trust, right? And so that is the key. And so what we systematically found is how do you identify those in a way that's scalable, right? And that's what revenue operators do is they, they understand what the gaps are and how to solve them scaled with scalability. So we invented a revenue, uh, revenue operations metric called 3VC, which takes your buying experience and a buying experience is just how your customer buys you. In most B2B enterprise sales, it's they talk to an SDR, they get handed off to, you know, they see some marketing, they go to your website, they download some stuff, an SDR reaches out to them, an SDR then passes that off to a sales rep, sales rep takes them to some point, some at some point an implementation specialist gets brought in, so on and so on. So that's the process of one buying experience for a customer, say an enterprise SaaS. What we do is we apply 3VC to it, which is we look at the, that sales data on volume, velocity, conversion, and value. So that's three Bs and one C. And what we find is we pit them against themselves, right? And so we can see, oh, from stage one to stage two in the last six months, your volume has been down. Your customers are experiencing that, right? Or your velocity is down. The customers are experiencing that. And we actually look at that historically. We also then take that because GoNimbly has the largest data source of SaaS-based businesses operationally. We manage over $2 billion for our customers. What we then look at is industry too. So we then match that against how well are you doing in your industry. So we find that you have these gaps in certain buying experiences by doing that analysis. Now, that's not your traditional SaaS metrics. We don't care about CAC because we are not, we don't care about margin. All we care is about finding the gaps that are going to increase revenue, right? And we're hoping that the rest of your business and that other flywheel knows what to do once we bring in the revenue. Right? <laughs> um, but, but, but our goal is to increase the revenue. And once you put that up as the North star, and I really do believe in giving everybody in that go to market team, the sales marketing and customer success team and the revenue operations team, a number they must hit. So when we go into a, uh, an engagement, 
it's not uncommon for us to say, hey, don't think of us as an ROI bet. Think of us as how are you going to have that million dollar target for your sales team and you're going to get a million, you know, 300,000 off because of the operational changes that we're making. Got it. Okay. And so uh, you said something there, there's a bunch there that we could dive into, but I'm, the everybody has a number they could hit. So are you advocating commission-based compensation for everybody on RevOps? Side? Yes. Yeah, I love it. Everyone should have some kind of base that they can make a living off of. I think that sometimes sales base is too low, but I think that everyone should be incentivized either through a bonus structure or pure commission based on the, the growth of the, the organization. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I'm a, I am a huge proponent of that as well. And that definitely does help start to break down silos. But are there other ways that you go about, you know, because even even if you take a customer success, marketing, sales, the people on the stage, there's natural silos there, sometimes because the marketing people don't have the same type of comp, sometimes because they don't understand what the salespeople do. How do you go about breaking those down and using this type of data uh, to help you accomplish that? Yeah. So we, so we're looking across the buying experience. So we're not prioritizing sales, right? We're using sales data to say, so as an example, often if you have an issue in stage one to stage two or stage two to stage three, it's usually a marketing operation issue that's happening, right? So you can, you understand by doing this work as a revenue operator that you can look at this data and infer I am a big proponent and the software we are building allows you to go further back than this, just the opportunity stages to the entire customer experience, right? And start to look at data trends inside of that customer experience. But in order to get started with revenue operations, you just need your opportunity data because you'll find things that really make a big difference there. So that's the first place I say. The second thing that we do is we come in and we start to build roadmaps. So we, we, we operate businesses like product companies. So we put everything up on a roadmap and we say why it's there and why we're prioritizing it and what we're hoping to get out of it. And then we actually monitor that. So as an example, in the, the example I gave of stage one to stage two, if we saw that we had a low conversion issue and we decided it had something to do with our marketing attribution, that we're not, we're not attributing the right kind of attribution to these accounts. And so then they're not getting flagged as ready for a sales rep to work on as a, a simple example. We may then monitor that and go, okay, we've changed this. We did an operational project here. And now we're seeing the volume increase and the conversion rate stayed the same or went up, right? What we would then do over time is say, we'd think that there's a correlation, maybe not causation, but a correlation to this operational project that we did and this going up, right? And so that bridges the gap where then suddenly everyone starts to play on the same team because everyone actually cares about that. So I don't believe necessarily in giving each individual a number and making them many silos in themselves. I believe in making that revenue team have a number, right? And yes, you can, you have to figure out what department can drive what through attribution and other methods, but ultimately everyone should be playing the same game, right? And then, so it's a lot of work we do around just that kind of alignment, but the roadmap helps tremendously. No operations team a year and a half ago when we started doing this work in the way that we do it now had roadmaps. Now, probably 25% of SaaS companies that we go into have a roadmap for their operations team that is built on right now experiential. I think I should probably pause and explain another concept that's pretty core to revenue operations based on their past experience, but they're, they're using a roadmap. And what that tends to do is align people to the greater good, right? And it's very important because the reason that silos, one of the reasons that silos occur is because people lose sight of what's actually being accomplished, right? And the other thing that happens and that we're a big proponent of 
of is we go into organizations and we say, okay, there are such things as there's, let's imagine there's this holy grail of revenue impact, this thing where the teams are working well together and we can impact revenue successfully. Well, then that might take a long time. So if you make a fundamental change to your business org, like restructuring your sales team, you may not see the revenue impact of that operational decision for six months, let's say. So how do you know it's working then? And this is where we say, okay, there's a difference between the KPIs we've used before, which are vanity KPIs and what we call revenue momentum KPIs, meaning that we have correlated that this KPI will result into dollars, right? And so we can then make a smaller goal of saying, yes, revenue impact is kind of this high North star that we're after, but in the sky, there are other stars, right? That you use to find the North star. And those are what we call, you know, your revenue momentum KPI. All right. So when we do, um, we talk about metrics, the vanity metrics versus the revenue, you know, momentum metrics help, help break just one or two examples. So the audience gets the difference. Yeah. So, uh, in SAS, it's typical that, uh, doing a demo of your product, a human demo of your product increases, especially in enterprise sales, increases the likelihood of a close one by 75%, right? So you could say that for each demo we do, that's like $5 in the bank, right? And so what we try to do is do this conversion of behavior that drives daily repetitive action within your go-to-market teams. And we try to attribute like every time we do that action, it's like making 10 bucks, right? And by doing that, what you're building is a behavioral set that will lead to true revenue impact over time. But often it takes a long time to get to revenue impact. And the example I gave before was, you know, you want to rearrange your sales team. You can rearrange your sales team, but it's going to take them three to six months and really for you to see that impact of that. Right. But if you have these KPIs that you can drive, you can see, okay, we are making progress because I know that the more demos we do, the more that we're going to close down the line. And that's how a way that you can bring the team together. And what we find is by creating these revenue KPIs, it almost creates gamification of milestones. I hate the word gamification. Yeah. It's something that we use a lot in the you know, 2010 era yeah. uh, and kind of just disappeared. But it creates a gamification of we're on the same team. We're making the same movie. Yeah, it's, it, and going back to the analogy to the before, every actor is trying to act their ass off, but the best actors are giving something to their scene partners, right? And so ultimately what you're trying to accomplish is this idea that there are these milestones that are beneficial to the entire revenue team and that everyone can drive off them. One vanity metric that is very common is the MQL to SQL handoff volume, right? And what happens? A sales head of sales goes to a marketing ops or mar uh, the head of marketing goes, we don't have enough leads. And what does the marketing ops person always say? <laughs> okay, I'll lower the scoring threshold so you get more leads. Well, that's the first identification that that's a vanity KPI that the marketing team has set up in order to, when the sales team doesn't hit their goal, say, well, I gave you all the leads that we committed to, right? And that is the definition of silo protecting, right? Is like, I don't want to be tied to the failure of the sales team. So I'm going to create this, this handoff metric that is actually meaningless because as soon as someone tells me they want more volume from me, I'm just going to tweak my numbers. <laughs> in, in reality, if you really believe in, in some companies, their, their score, their marketing, you know, their lead score, as an example, is real. And if you went to the head of sales and said, or held head of marketing and said, I will need more leads, they're going to go, well, we need to find new sources. Because that's a real number that's tied to real revenue for them. Right. Right. So the quicker they are to abandon that number, the more organizations can start to see, oh, that's a vanity metrics, right? The more, um, 
you know, one thing I hate to say about salespeople is a lot of times forecasting calls are all vanity. It's all, it's all this like dog and pony show that has really nothing to do with, you know, how many times have you talked to a sales manager and they get off the phone and you go, well, well that your pipeline looks really healthy. And they go, it's not, it's not at all. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, we don't really believe in this. So why are we investing all this time and energy into something that we don't actually believe in is going to create revenue for us? Right. And I love it. I love yeah. it. So, 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 so that's our philosophy behind all of it. And where this comes into and how you get to that customer experience is, and this is just real quick, uh, a, a major part of people to wrap their brain around is we've existed in, and there's a pyramid, a hierarchy, if you will. And the first level of a hierarchy of a business operationally is intuition-based. Someone walks into a room, a sales rep says, I hate the Salesforce page without, this is really hard on me. A Salesforce admin on the operations side goes, I can fix that for you. Boom, intuition, right? There's something that's wrong. Someone can fix it. We're moving forward. This is startup land, right? This is how all startups exist and operate. Then you get to experiential operations and experiential operations is when you hire someone from some company you admire, let's pretend you hired them from LinkedIn, you bring them in and they go, well, at LinkedIn, we did, you know, we did uh, this for lead scoring or we did this right. for, you know, stage gating and da, 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 da. And you say, okay, cool. That sounds great. You have the experience. We're going to listen to you. But the upper echelon of all of this is customer gap operations where you are finding the gaps that your customers experience in your process and you're operationalizing those. And what you'll find is you still can rely on the experience and you can still rely on the tuition because, intuition because people have great intuition and people have great experience, but you'll prioritize and push yourself to solve a problem when you focus on those two areas that are is real, but won't have the impact that you want for your business. Yeah, gotcha. And it, I mean, it really is more like, I mean, I remember back in the day when uh, database applications were designed from the ground up and the user interface was put on it as an afterthought. Right. And now Correct. we designed from, we designed, we designed applications for years. Finally. Well, most people did from the, from the user back. Now it feels like we're getting to a point where we're designing or optimizing businesses from the customer experience back rather than the product forward. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, my practice is I brought what we've been doing in product management for the last 25 years. I'm bringing that to, you know, the operations of businesses now. I love it. Awesome. All right. So let's change direction here a little bit. We ask all of our guests two standard questions at the end of each interview. As a CEO, that makes you a prospect for, for other mm -hmm. people out there that are trying Absolutely. to get your attention. Always curious to understand if somebody doesn't have a referral into you, a trusted way to get an introduction, what works best for you for somebody to capture your attention and earn right to your calendar? Yeah. So here's what I don't like. I don't like cleverness or wittiness because they're usually not clever or witty. Um, <laughs> so don't try to be overly impersonal with me. Be personal with me. Actually be personal with me. Like tell me why I should care in one sentence about what you have. And it can't be like, don't you care about leads? Of fucking course I care about leads. Why do you, I think you're going to give me leads? right? Like what about you versus everyone else is going that you think that. And then two, show me, you understand my business. If you message me and say, you're in the high tech space, it's like, yeah, me and 30,000 other companies, why are you talking to me? <laughs> and so it's being personal. At, and, uh, there's this woman named Beck Holland, who is amazing, who does this, uh, she flipped my funnel is the name of her, her yep. podcast and company. Uh, and she does great work around personalization at scale. And for every sales manager who says you can't personalize because it takes too much time, I say, okay, good luck as you watch, especially in the age of COVID, as you watch your pipelines dry up. Right. So then tell me how much time you have. So 
I would tell everyone that be personal, try to find, I mean, for me, I'm, you know, public figure. I do these kind of things all the time. You can find something that's going to relate to your product that I've said. If you can do that, I'm going to listen. I'm going to at least respond to you and be like, Hey, I already have a solution for this. Or, Hey, I'm not in the market for this. Or, Hey, you probably shouldn't be asking the CEO of an X million dollar company about what they do about their leads. Cause guess what? That's not my decision. You should know that. <laughs> I mean, so like, you know, those kind of things, I try to always be kind and respond to people because I know how hard that job is. But I think it's about being personal and ultimately listening to the feedback that you're getting this, uh, this thing where it's like, hit one, if you want this hit two, if you want this, I'm like, why are you acting like you're a robot now? Right. Like, leave that to robot software. Like, I don't need to hit nothing. I just won't respond to you. And I'll delete your email. Yeah, I always, um, I always love the ones like, hey, you didn't respond to my last email. Well, no, no shit. I didn't care about it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And if someone said, hey, I sent you an email and you didn't give a fuck about it. I'd probably be like, yeah, you're right. You're, I'd probably respond to them and be like, you're right. And then if they said, well, why didn't you care about it? If they even just changed the topic from trying to sell me their product to, hey, give me some feedback about this. You're going to get a conversation with Jason Reichel. So I, I think that's something that people should, should realize is there's always an opportunity for you to grow. Even if someone's not going to buy your product, take that because most of these people, that company that they're working for is not going to be their career. So take the time to grow as a professional. Absolutely. All right. Last question. We call it our acceleration in insight. One piece of advice. If you could just give one piece of advice to sales, marketing, professional service people, the people on the stage, one piece of advice that you think if they listen to would help them achieve or beat their targets, what would it be and why? Yep. A hundred percent of your customers that bought your product, bought your product. And what I mean by that is the idea of leads and prospects and growing your business through that is it's not a real thing anymore, right? So you need to refocus on your customers who have bought your product and work very hard on upsell and cross-sell and make your customer, your customer service or customer success team be a revenue driver for your business. You'll pick up somewhere between five and 7% of your quota if you do that, right? And it's a huge deal. So invest in operations and invest in customer success because those customers that bought are a hundred percent the people who are going to buy more from you and you need to learn to leverage them. Sales managers don't think like this until they're not, they're about to not hit their quota. Right. Um, <laughs> Desperation. So, yeah. So instead let's think the other way around and then go, Hey, for us, the secret sauce for our success has been the people in our industry leave their job every two years. Right. And so they've brought us to every organization that they go to. So we have an infinite supply of new customers and we have a two to four year tenure with the businesses that we work with. So we have grown hundred percent year over year, except for this year of COVID because of that. So you need to understand what that is for your business, right? What is, what is the virality effect for your business and how can you get into that? And in product management, we call that the hook. Every product needs a hook. So what is your, you know, your delivery hook for your sales team and for your go-to-market team? And how can you exploit that? And it's not just getting more leads by going to trade shows. That's nobody's hook. That's like, you know, you're just fishing and hoping you catch something, but how do you make sure you catch the right thing over and over and over again is what you should be looking for. And I think the other piece of advice I would give to sales managers is become a CRO, but realize that their O stands for, you know, chief revenue officer, which 
really to me means that you have to understand marketing, customer success operations, as well as you understand sales. Right. The value of a salesperson becoming a CRO is that you can teach those other departments urgency. But those other departments can teach you so much about maximizing value for customer. And so I think that's, that's a that piece of advice that I would give anyone to accelerate themselves. I love it. I love it. Uh, Jason, if a listener's interested in talking more about these topics or there's some particular place you want us to go for them to, li- to learn more, dive deeper on Go Nimbly, where do you prefer we send them? Yeah. So, you know, you can always go to Go Nimbly. We have a very good blog about revenue operations. We only work with sort of the enterprise B2B SaaS companies. Our, our pricing model kind of makes us not able to work with everyone. So we put out content for everyone instead to really help with thought leadership. But more importantly than that, you know, my phone number, I'm going to give it to everyone here. It's 415-669-0546. Again, it's 415-669-0546. Text me your questions about revenue operations. Text me your questions about your business. I'm happy to help. And I think that we are in the age of transformation, very similar that we went through from manufacturing to lean manufacturing or waterfall development to agile development. The businesses who get this revenue operations thing and implement it will have an unfair competitive advantage for the next 15 to 20 years. So get on it now, you know, help your business survive. Right now, and where we are in our time and space, it's very important to come together as a community and help one another. I love it. I, I could not agree more. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a conversation with you today. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it, Chad. All right, everybody. You know the drill. That does it for this episode. B2BRevExec.com. Share it with friends, family, coworkers. If you're stuck at home, kids will love it too. Till next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.